as human beings, we experience the world in ways that are mediated by our five senses through sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. These are the ways that we encounter the world around us and the signals are sent to our brain. The brain figures out a way of making sense of what's going on around us. It's an amazing thing that takes place. It's a marvelous thing. We do well to give praise, glory, and honor to our Creator, as David did in Psalm 139, about how wonderfully and majestically we have been made so that we are able to perceive our environment through these senses uh, and through the signals they send to the brain. The brain is able to make sense of the world around us. But we have done that to the point where we implicitly trust them. We just take those sense impressions for granted. We just assume that what's in, what we see is what we see, what's going on around us, and what we hear is what the noises are around us, and so on and so forth. Seeing is believing, and sensing is believing, fundamentally, and in general. And so it's good for us to consider our senses, how important they are, how powerful they are, some of their limitations, so that we don't go too far with them. But it's also interesting to see how much of our senses it kind of is mapped upon metaphors and how we understand the world around us and our experience of the world around us. And this is also seen in scripture. And of course, also how the senses uh, come into play as we come together in the assembly and share together in the assembly. And today we consider touch. In Luke 24 and verse 39, Jesus says in his resurrection, Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Our sense of touch is understood as our somatic sensory system. Soma is the body. Uh, we have around 5 million touch sensors in our skin, from head to toe. And they are sensitive to touch, to pain, and to temperature. When nerve sensors on the skin are activated, they're sending electrical pulses to neurons, which communicate it to the spinal cord, which then communicates those pulses to the brain. In Jeremiah 4 and verse 19, Jeremiah cries out, Oh, the feeling in the pit of my stomach, I writhe in anguish. Oh, the pain in my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet. The sound of the battle cry pierces my soul. In this, we see that it's not just our skin that has nerve sensors for temperature, pressure, and pain. We also have those kind of sensors going on within our body. And they're also sending electrical signals via neurons of the spinal cord and the brain. And that's why we can internally feel heat and pressure and pain like we can from external stimuli. In Psalm 94 and verse 19, it is declared, When worries threaten to overwhelm me, your soothing touch makes me happy. Our brains are putting forth a lot of effort to interpret the various electrical signals it receives throughout the somatic nervous system. It interprets temperature and or pain signals. Gate is their severity and importance. It also works to figure out the source of the sensation. And that's not just the physiological, also psychological aspects of touch. Because of touch, there's levels of intimacy and levels of comfort with uh, the, how touch is going on. Uh, whether there's exploratory, inquisitive touch or familiar, whether it's aggressive or painful, and it responds accordingly. And it truly is a marvel. It's a wonderful thing when it works. We don't even think about it, but it's an amazing thing. Right now, wherever you are, you're, sen you're, you're, you're such sensing things by contact, excuse me. You may be touching something, 
at this moment and you feel the sensation of it and, and the pressure of it and so on and so forth. Uh, if you're doing any kind of movement, it's all dependent upon the ability to sense the contact with the, the ground and, and for the, the various limbs to uh, have those connections and sensation with the spinal cord and brain. Uh, even if you're just sitting down, uh, your body is noticing the temperature around you and is sensing whether the situation means that you are in a at a decent internal temperature, an external temperature, or whether you are starting to get a little cold or a little warm and responds accordingly. Again, we don't even think about it, do we? If we did think about it, we'd go absolutely out of our mind. And that's just something we're seeing with all of the senses as we put them together, how the brain is at the same time processing things that we are seeing, things that we are hearing, the smells in our environment, uh, if we're eating also what we're tasting, uh, and also the sensations of uh, touch and pressure and temperature all around us at all times. It's, it's absolutely amazing and wonderful. In Matthew 8 and verse 6, the Centurion tells Jesus, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible anguish. Because while it is a wonderful thing when it works, it causes us a lot of grief and pain when it does not. Even if you're completely healthy and everything is functioning well, uh, you can have signals get me messed up and mixed up. So imagine um, a kind of a plate that has metal strips on it, metal bar strips on it. And imagine that you have cold and warm in alternating se um, sessions. So you have a cold bar, warm bar, cold bar, warm bar, cold bar, warm bar. If you put your hand on the cold bar, you will feel the cool. It is not so cold as to cause any pain, but you feel that it's cool. If you put your hand on the warm one, you feel the warmth. Again, not so hot that it's going to cause pain. What happens if you put your hand on that plate with the alternating cold, warm, cold, warm, cold, warm? All of a sudden, you no longer are sensing cold or warm. All you're sensing is pain. It hurts. Well, how does that make any sense? Well, apparently, what we can tell, science can tell us, that the there is always a pain sensor going with a cold or heat sensation. But normally what happens is the cold or heat sensation kind of gets to the brain before the pain sensation, and the brain kind of turns off the pain sensation. But when the cold and warm are both being sent, they neutralize each other. So all that's left for the brain to feel is the pain sensor. And, and this is an important thing to note about the nature of uh, pain and all kinds of other things going on. There are absolutely times where pain signals might be received or imagined by the brain. And there's no physiological basis. It could be a breakdown somehow in the nerves. What this doesn't mean, though, is that it's quote-unquote, just in their heads to the point of being dismissive about it. Because even if there is no physiological prompt, like when we're talking about putting the hand on those bars, there's, there's nothing about those that's actually hurting the hand, right? But that doesn't mean that you're not feeling pain. Pain is still being felt. It's still very real. There's a lot of conditions that lead to degeneration in the neural pathways that lead to spasticity, numbness, and lack of control. And on account of injury or illness, a person might lose feeling in a part of the body and become paralyzed. Uh, the part of the body still exists. It receives blood flow, nourishment, uh, everything of the sort. But the fact that there's no sensation, it means that the brain cannot effectively use that part of the body. And, and this is something that 
is very devastating when people experience it, when they're not used to it. But for a lot of people, it just becomes part of their normal and they have to manage in their lives. Now, we're going to no doubt learn a lot more about the somatic nervous system and its relationship with the brain and psychology. Uh, we're starting to learn about connections with the microbiome when it comes to uh, mental states and things of that nature. And maybe because of all that, we're going to gain greater insight into some of these matters. Uh, but we can just marvel at the concept of touch, not just our trying to press on something and touch something, but also uh, just everything that our body is sensing in the same concept of touch uh, and, and how important that is to the way that we function in life. In Genesis 27:21, as uh, Esau, Isaac is wondering what's going on with the fact that Esau is in front of him. It's really not Esau, it's Jacob. He's confused by this. He wants Jacob to come closer so he can touch him and know if he is really Esau. And because touch is a very profoundly important sense. And it's got a lot of power in us and over us. We have talked before about how taste and experience are strongly associated with each other. And that is absolutely true, and that remains true. But touch is even more experiential than taste is, uh, believe it or not, uh, because it is the primary and continual way in which we experience the world around us. Uh, when we taste, yeah, we, we are having an experience of the flavors of food, uh, but that's only when we're eating. At, at every other time, though, we are continually having the experience of the world around us, uh, feeling whatever light breeze there might be in the air, uh, feeling the radiation of the sun uh, if, if it's out there, and or rain hitting us and the pressure that causes and, and the cold, coldness it may encounter. Uh, any number of things we are feeling at any given time. And it's a very multivalent experience. It's not just one thing. Uh, if you're walking, you are feeling the various pressures and sensations of your your feet hitting the ground as you are making steps, as you're feeling the breeze and air and everything else, and even the the, the sensation of your clothes upon your body, the fact the clothes is touching this, this the nerves or the skin and the nerves are picking that up again. All of these things are going on all at the same time. But it's not even just the most experiential of senses; also the most communal of senses, because we can all see or hear or smell or taste similar things but touch is mutual contact between people is mutually sensed in a profound way far more than seeing hearing and the like and touch is intimate and psychological and physiologically crucial there are people who live very high quality lives and they're blind they cannot see a thing but they have learned how to experience the world through the other senses and continue. There are people who are deaf who experience uh, the world and are able to function. Uh, with COVID-19, we've seen that there are some people who, uh, one of the symptoms of it was the loss of uh, smell and taste. And some people have uh, had that sensation uh, continually uh, in, in a situation where it's not working uh, the way that it used to. And they're surviving, right? But... The experience of touch is incredibly necessary for life. If babies are not held, they will fail to thrive, and some will even die. We need to remember we are made in God's image for relational unity. God is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we are made to relate to our God and to one another. Because of that, 
Touch is a major aspect of relationship. Touch starvation is absolutely a real thing, and it becomes quite devastating. There are uh, amazing lengths people will go to in order to receive touch and to get away from touch starvation. And you can even receive energy, be literally energized through the touch of another. Have you had a conversation with someone uh, and then perhaps try to, you know, you could try the same conversation once without touching and once while, you know, having just a hand, even just like on his shoulder, something like that. And it's probably going to come across uh, very differently, be understood and experienced very differently. Uh, if you are at all familiar with trauma-informed, uh, trauma-based relational intervention, especially with children, uh, one of the first and fundamental things is that when you are trying to have a conversation with a child who has uh, all kinds of stress issues, uh, you have to touch them. You have to be at their eye level and touch them uh, throughout the conversation to maintain that kind of contact, to uh, remind them in that sense that, that you are welcoming them, they're, they're with you, and that the conversation or whatever correction needs to be done is not uh, a demonstration of abandonment. I myself have had an experience where I was at a coffee shop and I uh, just happened to turn around at the same time another one was turning around. We absolutely bumped into each other. You know, just a, a completely normal happenstance, nothing out of the ordinary. And, and I remember distinctly, this even this happened years ago, uh, that when she, she, she probably had had some kind of executive training. She was a, a professional woman with uh, some of her, her colleagues there. And she put her hand on, um, my collarbone and looked at me in the eye and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It, it, one of those power moves, right? In terms of, uh, not in terms of trying to assert dominance or anything like that, but just one of those things taught in that kind of environment about how you relate with people. And I could feel the surge of energy uh, that came from her touch. It was, the, it was the most bizarre thing, something that has stuck with me for many years, that you know, just a normal incident. I don't know that woman, never seen that woman since. Just one of those random things that happens, but it left that profound influence that there was energy being communicated like it was electricity just through a, a, the touch of a hand on the collarbone. And how many ways can we communicate through that kind of touch? Now, as philosophical liberalism has progressed and we, we now value the autonomy of the individual more and more, there is become a much greater concern about how we engage in touch in the communal environment. And there are a lot of situations now where uh, we are trying to get as touch-free as possible uh, in order to make sure that everybody is at the most comfortable. And because we have emphasized autonomy, uh, we, uh, we recognize uh, touch as very intimate. And there are many forms of touch which are incredibly intimate that we need to maintain boundaries about. Uh, but we need to also recognize that there is something being profoundly lost when we decide that we are not going to do any kind of contact with our fellow human beings, uh, that there is touch starvation going on, and that will have uh, implications and consequences for people in their lives. And if we are in a position where we are very resistant to touch from anybody in any context, um, we need to, that's something to probably work through with a therapist or a, uh, somebody in the, in that kind of field, because there's some stuff going on there that 
uh, it's probably very understandable, uh, relatable in some ways, there's some kind of trauma, but ultimately is going to prove unhealthy for somebody because uh, we are nourished in a very real way by touch. Because our experience of the world and our lives are powerfully and profoundly shaped by touch. Touch is how we uh, really discern the world around us in very real and concrete ways. But also, uh, it is very much deeply impressed upon us in, 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 in terms of our emotions and everything else uh, about uh, how we're dealing with events based upon touch and contact and things of that sort. And as we mentioned, you can sense touch internally as much as ex externally. And so because of that, we associate sensation and emotion. We feel sensations in the environment. We feel various emotional states and conditions. And we need to remember, it's only very recently in human history that we've discovered that really it's the brain that's the seat of um, not just thinking, but all more reasoning. Uh, the ancient world is believed that the heart generated those things. And that's what you see throughout the scriptures, right? In Exodus 36, just as an example, Moses summoned Bezalel and Holiab and every skilled person with Yahweh, but skill everyone whose heart stirred him to volunteer to do the work. And we can understand why that would be the, the way that statement is made, right? Because the call went out, we need to help build something. And there were some men who heard that, and there was literally concretely excuse me, a, a feeling they had, a, a feeling rise up within them, their thumos, their life force or whatever, uh, burned within them to some degree or, or, or stir them. They, they, they were provoked in a visceral way that was an emotional response to the call, but it was something that was in their heart. And, and that's what spurred them on to participate in that work. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that Yahweh your God will cleanse your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your mind and being so that you may live. So notice there that the heart is to be cleansed so that you can serve God with the mind. The heart is being put centrally there in that line of thinking. And even to this day, we still do tend to associate emotions and, and that, I use that thumos again, the Greek word for vital life strength and energy as it's being rushed out of you. Have you ever felt like just this kind of surge of energy inside you, and you just went, ah, and go do it? That's thumos. These things are still associated more with the heart than the mind, even though we, quote-unquote, know better, and it's all being triggered by mind. And the heart is just a muscle pumping blood. That, that's what we, we know this, but we still use this in, in metaphor, technically, but also because, again, we feel it, and we feel it there. The locus of that kind of feeling is in the chest, not the head, and that's why we consider it our heart. And we've done ourselves a disservice in our attempts to disassociate emotion from the mind and our experiences. Because with all of our senses, we sense, and those sensations often generate some kind of emotional response, right? We see a loved one, that's going to trigger an emotional response. We see somebody we're hostile to, that's going to trigger a very different emotional response. Uh, we've, we've talked about how uh, music is profound in many ways with hearing, and when we hear certain voices, we can be soothed or caused anxiety. Uh, we can use music to ramp us up, to calm us down, to inspire us, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've talked about the very visceral reactions we have with smell or taste, right? Uh, either we are very much attracted by them or repelled by them. But this is supercharged with touch and the somatic nervous system. And our somatic nervous system is impacted by our emotions, as we can see in Jeremiah 4.19. Uh, the moments on, there's this crisis experience, and you start feeling 
the, the heart gets pumping, uh, all kinds of chemicals are being flooded, right? And all of a sudden you start feeling anxious and that starts affecting your physiology. It starts affecting uh, how your stomach's functioning, how your brain's functioning, how you're breathing. It, the trigger, the catalyst may be emotional or mental, but the physiological response is no less real because of it. And this whole feeling sensation concept connection is powerfully seen in a verb that we see used a lot in the New Testament. It is used in Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, compassion, there's the Greek verb splanchnizomai, which literally means a movement in the bowels. Not a bowel movement, but a visceral description of the experience of empathy. Have you ever been in a situation where you saw a person or an animal in some kind of distress or pain and you in in your you know lower chest region in, in the in that region of the gut felt either like a twisting or a nodding or some kind of feeling there uh that you want to reach out from there to connect and to in the and to and to soothe and to comfort or to alleviate that's splunkism and it's such a powerful visceral description of a very real phenomenon that is physiological. I mean, if that's going on with that person or that animal, it's not happening to you. You're not actually going through it, but you are actually having a physiological experience of empathy. And it is a feeling turned into a sensation. And we cannot overestimate the importance of that kind of experience. That's what really motivates us toward righteous care and concern for others. In the story of the Good Samaritan, that he was he had compassion. He was moved when he saw that man. And what did he do? Because he was moved to help that man, he helped that man. If there had been just a cold, calculating, rational uh, view of it, maybe there would not be as any assistance. And so many times we want to talk about the emotions and we want to get negative real quick. And we want to focus on how uh, destructive anger can be and how wayward we can go when we give ourselves over to lustful passions. Uh, and we want to focus on the irrationality as causing distress and grief, as if the right response is to maintain pure rationalism. And in so doing, we are creating a very warped and distorted image because it is not as if we should justify or excuse uh, the effects of anger or lust or something of that sort. But we also need to realize that having these feelings make us human. Jesus had these feelings. That was part of being human. And the feelings motivate us unto righteousness as much as they can lead us away and toward temptation. And we're not going to, in a full, pure, rational mind, uh, be able to fully glorify and serve God the way that he has established for us in Christ. That it will require that kind of feeling. We have to have that compassion, for instance, for our fellow man. You've got to feel it in order to love and to do it. And there's no way to get around or to escape that feeling. And so that is why we can't get away from the concept of emotion and the experience of emotion and why we so strongly associate touch and what we can feel with how we feel in our emotions. In Psalm 38, verse 8, it is said, I am numb with pain and severely battered. I groan loudly because of the anxiety I feel. As we've noted, one of the major functions of the somatic nervous system is to send signals that shows pain is present. 
Now, we can experience pain from various forms of physical injury. We also, as we said, can experience pain from mental and emotional distress, like a four and verse nine testifies about this. But pain presents us with a very interesting quandary. Because we don't enjoy it, right? And we will go to all kinds of lengths to avoid it, to cope around it, or to suppress it. But pain is vitally important for our welfare and our health. Now, we understand why we want to avoid pain, right? No one likes to feel pain. If you find pain enjoyable or desirable, there's some unaddressed trauma there. There's a problem there. There's something unhealthy there. And pain is unpleasant in order to accomplish its purpose. It's the warning signal that something is not right. It's a summons to change behaviors to restore harmony and balance. Uh, we, we think about when you put your hand on the hot stove and you feel pain. That is so your body knows to move the hand away from that thing that's causing it to burn. So, yeah, pain is supposed to be unpleasant. It's supposed to provoke that kind of reaction. Now, as humans, we tend to want to suppress pain. We rarely want to suppress that kind of sharp, acute pain. But many kinds of dull pain we will try to suppress. Or we will say, if our body's starting to show some signs of, of, of distress that we just don't have time for, we want to fight through or power through, uh, or especially a lot of mental and emotional pain. Uh, grappling with grief and loss, um, hurt, pain. Uh, we, we really want to avoid those and to suppress those. But we do that to our peril. Because the sooner we address the pain, the more likely we can easily treat and manage it. But the longer we suffer in the pain, the more likely it's going to lead to significant damage and problems that may, in fact, be permanent. And this, again, is our your invitation and encouragement there's no virtue in trying to suffer through things. When your body's in pain, you do well to listen to your body. If you start feeling pain you didn't before, get it checked out. If you are going through mental and emotional grief and distress, process that, work through it so that you can heal from it. But ironically, one of the reasons we want to avoid that healing process, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, that we're going to have to endure pain in order to accomplish healing. And avoiding that pain hinders healing. How many people are turned to all sorts of unhealthy coping mechanisms in order to avoid, dull, or suppress pain in their lives, be it from physical sources, emotional sources, mental or spiritual sources? And our society's default philosophical position is Epicureanism, which is about the avoidance of pain. And so people don't have the resources to suffer through the pain in order to obtain true healing and wholeness. So we imagine, man, wouldn't it just be great to have a life without pain? Actually, not really. What would happen if you don't experience pain? In fact, on a physical level, there are people who have what's called congenital analgesia. They sense other things. They can sense pressure. They can sense temperature. But their brains do not register pain impulses. We might think that sounds great. but when they touch the hot plate or stove, there's no signal to stop, and they can burn themselves. If they fractured or broken limbs or torn tendons, they're not feeling anything, and those injuries can be exacerbated. What if their bodies have an infection, or there's cancer present, or some kind of condition, that the only manifestation would be an experience of pain, of sensitivity? They're not going to feel it, they're not going to have a reason to get it checked out, and it might lead them to be mortally ill. So life with pain is ugly and awful, but a life with no pain and corrupt creation is also awful. We hate pain, but we need pain because it reminds us of our limitations and weaknesses. 
We hurt because we're trying to do something we can't do. Yeah. We hurt when we touch the stove because uh, our bodies are not designed to be able to endure temp uh, that kind of temperature. Uh, if we fall and hurt ourselves or jump from something and hurt ourselves, uh, break something, uh, it's because we've tried some kind of maneuver that doesn't work with the physics of how our bones work. Uh, if we got pain because we are developing cancer or have some kind of internal issue, uh, it's it's being provoked because our, our body's under attack and it's it's being either from itself or from some other agent, and, and that and that's difficult, right? So this is always the recognition: we are weak, we are frail, we are not as strong as we imagine we are. We are not God in any way, shape, or form, and that's why pain is designed to, in humility, point us to entrust ourselves to our Creator, because. Uh, we hurt ourselves when we don't think we've got extreme, we don't have limitations. And that is as true emotionally and spiritually as it is physically. And so when we feel pain, we are reminded, oh, there's somebody who's greater than we are. There's something greater than us out there, and we need to submit ourselves to him. Because there is the promise extended, Revelation 21 verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will not exist anymore. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. The former things will have ceased to exist. And there's a lot of promise in, in that, and a lot of hope in that promise. But only in terms of immature immortality in the resurrection, excuse me. Immortality is necessary for that. With mortality, it doesn't work. But we can enjoy a lack of pain when we are immortal and incorruptible. And that is the hope that we have in Jesus. In Luke 6 and verse 19, the whole crowd was trying to touch Jesus because power is coming out from him and healing them all. In fact, one of the most profound and compelling aspects of Jesus' incarnation is how he touched people, and that he could himself be touched. And the scriptures testify how many saw various acts of God or heard the voice of God, but only when God took on flesh and dwelt among us could he be touched, and he touched others. And they did well to reach out and touch Jesus, for in his touch is power to heal. We may not be able to touch him physically right now, but we can experience his presence in the Spirit and take comfort in him in Ephesians 3, 13-21. And thus we can see the importance and power of touch that we are called upon to touch. We are to uh, reach out and to uh, touch. In, in the assembly even, right? We talk about uh, greet one of the holy kiss. That's a form of contact. That's a form of touch. Uh, touch is a way that we indicate uh, a level of relationship and connection. And it's the way that we experience the world. And it is so deeply associated with our feelings because we feel with our hands and with our skin and our environment, we also feel what emotions that we feel. And we've addressed uh, the quandary pain, how we hate it, but we need it. And there is hope that we will be able to get beyond all pain, but that is in Jesus in the resurrection. And we do well to find healing in Jesus and in him to find the resurrection of life, and to share in life with him forever in all eternity. We're again so glad you've joined us. I'm Ethan with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to be of further service to you. If you have any questions or comments about touch, let us know in the comments and continue our conversation. Subscribe to us where you found us. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VenturesChurchChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.